Well, hello and good morning, Riverview. Great to be with you. Uh, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Normally, I set up shop at the Rio Town venue where I lead, um, but it's a privilege to be with you today. And you know, keeping uh, the musical chairs preaching thing going on keeps things fresh to boot. So, great to be here um, today. We are continuing, almost concluding our If Then series in the New Testament book of Colossians. This is written by the imprisoned Paul with some help of Timothy, and they are writing a Greek church that Paul has never visited. Now, if you are tracking along or if you are familiar with this book, you know that thus far they have been spilling serious ink to position Jesus as absolutely and exclusively foundational that he is completely sufficient and supreme over everything. And then they have this bold claim that Jesus is in the business of reconciling all things to himself through his blood shed on the cross. Last week in chapter three, uh, we considered relationships, how to live in integrity in view of how God loves us. Now we turn the corner thoroughly into chapter four, where Paul is gonna address prayer something that most Christians feel very insecure or guilty about. Have you ever talked with someone and they're like, I pray enough. I, I pray well. Well, today we want to consider the quality of our prayer because Paul is going to lean into how indispensable it is for our life and mission. He opens like this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. He's going to give us three big insights to pray in a way that, in his words, opens doors, opens the door of closed hearts and places for the gospel. Three insights. First of all, he says, be devoted. Other translations are going to think, say things like, continue steadfastly, be diligent, busily engaged, give persistent attention to prayer. So normative to our lifestyle is running communication with God, whether that's that stream of consciousness where you're trying to go to work, oh Lord, help me to get there on time, right? That kind of prayer, or when we break away in solitude, uh, we, we need to be like Jesus. Jesus had a life that was steeped in prayer. The same thing should be said for his disciples. So we need to be devoted to prayer. Secondly, verse two says that we need to stay alert in prayer. We need to be watchful perceptive, attentive to what's happening, what's going on in our personal lives, in our social lives, what's happening in society. So when he says that we need to be watchful or alert, the language originally conjures up this idea of being on guard duty. So dial up the image in your head of a guard at a watchtower through the watches of the night, awake, alert, caffeinated, soberly scanning the horizon for any possible movement. We are to be watchful. Um, if we're honest, or at least if I'm honest, you know, I'll be honest once in a while, um, I don't always pray like this, right? We throw out that prayer really quick before we eat the burger or we're falling off to sleep or it's the sports ball and the team may not do the thing, right? Oh, Lord, help me, right? Autopilot. There's this striking picture at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The stakes are high. He's praying prior to his betrayal and crucifixion and all that would be coming. And Jesus, if you lean in to Matthew 26, you see how attentive he is to his own soul, of what's going on in his own soul. 
of what's happening with the religious leaders, of what's happening in the scope of God's redemptive plan of salvation, the stakes are high. And at this monumental and harrowing moment, he asks the disciples to watch and pray. Fellas, be here in the moment with me. Watch and pray. And while Jesus stays locked in, they doze off. It says this in Matthew 26, he, that's Jesus, found them sleeping. So he asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptation is lurking, so pray so that it doesn't get you. Watchfully resist it. And just as an aside here, in addition to being integrated with the scripture and citing scripture to Jesus, one of the ways that we resist temptation is through alert prayer. We see this and what he does with the devil, what he does with all of the pressures, the crowds come and Jesus just like disappears to go pray. So alert prayer. Attending to situations, our inclinations, the stressors that we are facing, what's going on around us, alert prayer. This is a striking contrast between Jesus and, the most, and, and most of the rest of us, especially Peter. Think about it. Right after this interaction, um, Jesus is going to hold strong to the point of death. The text says that he had set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was a man on a mission. He was going to do the thing. Look at Peter, though. Peter is in his flesh. The group of men come to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Pulls out a sword, and he attacks someone. Then what does Peter do? In the coming hours, in cowardly fear, he denies knowing him three times. So we are supposed to be devoted to alert prayer. And that there's another ingredient that we need to be mindful of as well. Thanksgiving, so says Paul. Gratitude. You see, prayers aren't just supposed to be um, these pleadings to a mystical slot machine up in the sky. You just keep throwing them in there and maybe one will take. Um, Prayer is supposed to be marked by awe, by reverence, by praise, where we recognize the good in our lives and the giver of that good. See, prayer is not ultimately about what you're praying for. It's about who you're praying to. I'll say that again. Okay, prayer is not ultimately about what you are praying for. It's about who you are praying to. I took a sabbatical a few years back. I think it was the summer of 2020. And it was a guided sabbatical. It wasn't just like, let's take a nap for three months, though that would have been very nice. Um, And one of the biggest things that I did not expect coming through the sabbatical was really a, a revolutionary change in my prayer life. Um, I came across um, uh, an old dead guy by the name of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He's a Spanish priest and a theologian. He ministered back in the 1500s. And among other things, he is known for gifting the church a number of prayers. One of those is called the prayer of examine. And the prayer of examine uh, helps us slow down, acknowledge God's presence, his sovereignty over the people, places, and situations in our life. And really, it's built on a set of of, of five uh, simple and straightforward prompts. Um, And I'm just going to measure, mention the first of these, and you overachievers can go Google the rest. Um, But the first move of the prayer, I realized, was something that wasn't just lacking in my prayer life, but it was lacking in all of my life. The first move is is that of thankfulness, of gratitude. 
Ignatius uh, prescribed prayer the way Paul did. So often what we do is, is we run off and we say, dear God, gimme, 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 right? Or for me, I'm still kind of shaking off some Baptist guilt. So I'm like, God, I'm sorry. I did things wrong. And that's good. We need to ask him for our requests. And we do need to repent. But there's more to the equation. And so what this prayer has prompted me to do is take inventory of my blessings. Just to start in things big and small. How has God been good to me when I slow down and I watchfully scan the horizon of my life? What would I be heartbroken if I didn't have, here's just a, a quick list for me. From the bottom of my heart, being sincere. Sunny days. My garden. My daughter's beautiful singing voice. She's eight. And when she belts out the paramour, when we were in the car, oof, carpool karaoke has nothing on us. <laughs> the book of Proverbs. Uh, Riv Kids, VBS this past week, man, they killed it. It was amazing. History podcasts. Some, some are not that good, but oof, there's some good ones out there. Uh, MSU's incoming recruiting class for basketball. I think we might be all right. I'm thankful for the courage I have mustered up for some difficult conversations of late, and I'm very thankful they're behind me. I'm thankful that God lets me approach him exactly as I am. Do we have gratitude? Do we have gratitude in our prayer life? Do we realize that despite the trials, the pain, the very real unmet desires and needs, do we see that God's goodness persists yet? That he is still good, whether it's the gift of another day, the air in our lungs right now, uh, the assurance of our salvation, or the fact that we can meet as a church in public without any fear of persecution. Do we realize who we're dealing with, that our God is good even in this fallen world? So the posture we're to take in prayer is one of alert devotion and thanksgiving. And when we do that, prayer gets good and rich. And we don't just hurry through it because of who we're dealing with, not just what we're asking for. But what are we supposed to be asking for? What are we supposed to be doing? Because we should, should still consider the content of our prayer. Well, one of the things Paul says we pray for is open doors, verses three and four. He says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I might make it known as I should. So get this, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. That's usually how it works, right? His primary prayer request here is not that the prison doors are gonna be opened. It's, that's not what he prays for initially. That's what I would pray for. But he says, may a door be opened for the gospel. Paul is alert and he's watchful, so he sees that he actually has an opportunity. Life's like lemons. And he's like, hmm, lemonade. His circumstances, he understood, we're not accidental. God's sovereign. God's in control. How could they be? And these circumstances could be leveraged to amplify the message of the gospel. His ardent hope and prayer, his first prayer here, is not that the literal doors would be open to the prison. It's the metaphorical doors to open doors for the message, the people, the places, the hearts, the minds, the places where the gospel has not been heard, that the gospel would go there. 
Paul had this reputation. You see this in the book of Acts. He would evangelize the guards and prisoners. Hey, we're cellmates. I'm hooked to you, buddy. Um, Let me tell you why I'm here. And then he would just start going. The authorities that would give him a hearing. That's a megaphone. Um, As I was digging in, nerding out this week, uh, scholars note that there was a widespread rumor about Paul and his ministry that whenever he was imprisoned, that the people in charge quickly learned that they had to regularly and quickly swap out the guards who were guarding him because they just kept converting. Like, he's like, hey, since you've got another eight hours on the shift, um, I'm just going to, I'm already in prison. What are you going to do? Shut me up? Throw me in prison? Right? He would keep going. He figured that it was the mystery of Christ preaching that, that put him in prison, that maybe being in prison would be a way to leverage time and attention to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Oh, by the way, what's this mystery? We've talked about it a bunch now. It's actually mentioned early in the letter when Paul, in chapter one, speaks of the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, so the church now has something that has been formally disclosed. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles, these are the non-Jews, the, the myriad of the nations, the myriad of people and populations, the ethnicities, the glorious wealth of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in people, the hope of glory. His mystery is that salvation is available to everyone, everywhere, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the young, the old, the rich and the poor, the gospel tells us that God has extended this offer of salvation to everyone. And if you're here this morning and you are still alienated from God and you don't know where you stand with God this morning, we have good news for you. The mystery is revealed. God can take away your sin. He can give you his righteousness. He can give you life to the full. Believe in the resurrected Messiah. You will have life to the full. Give him your allegiance. He will give you eternity. So Paul was praying for open doors. People, places that were closed would then be opened up so that people of every stripe and every generation would hear and believe and be adopted into God's family. Do you and I pray for that all the time? I mean, Paul was like, Lord, may I be an instrument to impose your will. Use me, Lord. Typically, um, we pray something like, Lord, May you be an instrument to impose my will. Please get on that. By the way, by itself, that's not devotion. That's consumerism. That's what that is. Several years ago, decades ago, the great Chinese teacher and church leader, Watchman Nee, said, nowadays, Christians appear to treat prayer as a means to accomplish their aims and ideas. If they possessed just a little deeper understanding, they would recognize that prayer is but man uttering to God what God's will is. That's ultimately the essence of prayer. Dialing in with God and his agenda, not necessarily ours. So prayer is not supposed to be this self-centered incantation, but rather directed towards praise 
and the fulfillment of the great commission to make disciples. That's the essence of prayer. So where have we been thus far? Okay, let's, let's recap a bit. Paul so far has been addressing our need to talk to God about other people on behalf of other people, that doors would open, that they would receive the gospel. Now he's gonna pivot and he's gonna talk about talking to other people about God. This is a very important relationship, talking with God about other people then talking with other people about God, uh, trying to actually answer some of these prayers that we're praying, you know, uh, obedience, that kind of thing. So here's some clear and practical commands about how we go after that. Verse five, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Now, first off, this assumes Christians interact with people outside of the faith. Now, we are supposed to gather. Uh, Fellowship is amazing. Worshiping together is awesome. We need to keep that. Um, But those insular, holy huddles, supposed holy huddles where Christians only interact with other Christians, they're not biblical. They're not missional. They're not holy. They're disobedient. We can't love our neighbors if we don't know them. We can't serve and evangelize people out in society if we avoid them. It's impossible to be a friend of sinners as Jesus was if we either think we are better than people or if we are afraid of people. Paul necessarily assumes that what it is to be a Christian is to be integrated into society. If you got a little light, you got to let it shine. You don't put it under a basket. I think some guy said something about that sometime, right? Think about what this means, though, for the church of Colossae. It's very striking when you lean into the historical context because unlike us, they were a very small, upstart religious minority in a city without any social or any political influence. There were other, larger, more established, more confident groups. So the Colossian Christians, in particular, would be especially vulnerable to either selling out or retreating. If you look in the history of all religions, sadly Christianity included, it is common for people to feel threatened by the outside world, right? Where there's this assumption that says, unless we have clear social and political dominance, we can't really exist properly, right? And by the way, dominance is not the point of the faith. And so what we think of is like, man, we better just retreat and get in these little holy huddles, and stay away from those who live and think differently. But Paul is stressing, not only is time scarce, but we have a mission to engage others. And once we're around others, once we're present out in a marketplace of ideas and lifestyles, we act wisely. We do this because our interaction with skeptics, that is a sacred opportunity every time. If you don't seem immediate fruit, that's okay. It's a sacred opportunity to interact with skepticism. I looked at some studies this past week of non-Christian perceptions of Christians. And you know, you get those prompts, what words or phrases come to mind when you think of Christians? And you get some cringy answers. Hypocritical, politically partisan, anti-scientific, bigoted, sometimes untroubled by things like colonialism. And no doubt, there are people who misrepresent the faith 
people who claim Team Jesus and they're all Team Crazy instead. Um, There are caricatures and there are a lot of unfair stereotypes. That's a thing. But what if instead of being defensive or fulfilling these stereotypes, we just resolved to carry ourselves with wisdom? We've got all the acceptance and love that we need. We have acceptance and love from God, so let's, let's just be wise and not worry about it. John Piper, uh, commenting on what wisdom means in this passage, says, Wisdom is knowing how to become all things to all people without compromising holiness and truth. It's creativity and it's tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people want and need. In order to buy up opportunities for God, we have to be wise in our behavior. Wisdom is about walking that razor's edge. It's about living out your salvation with fear and trembling, to love God and people, to be informed, to be winsome, to be people who aren't easily offended while maintaining devotion to God. So what might this wise behavior look like? We're going to go through verse 6 very slowly in chunks because there's so much there. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. We'll stop there. Let your speech always be gracious. Now, if you pay attention to the Bible or if you observe our world with even a, a shred of awareness, you know that words are powerful. They tear down, they build up. They comfort and they incite hatred. How we use our words has always been and will always be a hot topic of debate. That's not gonna go away and like, oh, it's 2030. People don't care about this anymore. No, we will always care about this. You got that group of people, you know, they're like, don't you dare talk like that right? Very hot take. And then you got another group of people who are like, don't you dare talk about how I talk like that. And my whole purpose in life is to talk however I want to talk. But what about Christians? What should characterize our speech? Grace, being gracious. 155 times in the New Testament, this word charis, charis, comes up. This speaks to a favor, a sense of favor, a a, a gift, a voluntary act of good will. This is where we get the word charity. When someone is charitable, they don't have to do anything, but they see a need and like the Grinch, their heart grows three sizes and they're like, ah, here you go, people of Whoville. Interestingly, I I learned this this past week um, that the Greek word for grace is actually closely related to the Greek word for joy. They are, they are so tightly knit. It's almost like they're a package deal. It's like you've got this acquaintance and her name is Grace and her best and inseparable friend is Joy. And Grace is just so warm and so kind and Joy is like the life of the party. So if Grace gets invited someplace, her plus one, you know who it's gonna be. It's Joy, they show up together. It's a package deal consider our relationship with Christ. Paul is like, y'all are hidden in Christ. When he is revealed, oh my gosh, like we don't even have words. When he was caught up into the heaven, he's like, I can't even describe it. Do you know how God feels about us? How he loves us? What characterizes 
how our Father looks at his children. Grace. We are recipients of grace. I, I tattooed that on my arm because I doubt it and I need to believe it. We don't just get mercy, my friends. We get mercy and mercy is great. But you wanna know what mercy is? Mercy is when someone withholds the bad things that you deserve. They're holding back mercy. And sometimes we think of God as, oh, he's just merciful, but he's really like white knuckling it. And he's just like, I should. But he also gives us grace joyfully, favor, goodwill, the good stuff that we don't deserve. He doesn't just withhold the curse, but he gives us divine favor. Shouldn't that be reflected in how we talk to those made in his image? There's a lot at stake So the Apostle James says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people made in God's likeness. Look, sometimes we need to have real talk, and that's a form of grace. But whenever we curse, even our worst of enemies, we are spitting on the image of God because they are made in the image of God. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters... These things should not be this way. So our words, which should always be true words, should be characterized by grace always. And not only grace, but he also says they should be seasoned with salt. Let's continue a little further in verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Seasoned with salt. Salt, Salty speech? There's some connotations, like all the sailors are like, I know what you're talking about. No, that's not what we're talking about. Well, we know what salt does in a culinary sense, don't we? Right? It, it, it prevents rot. It, it uh, prevents decay, especially back in the day with Paul and co. Like, they didn't have refrigeration. So you want to keep the meat and, like, you don't want to have your guts just melt out of you? Throw some salt in there. It preserves. And it also adds flavor. It improves taste. Uh, not long back, uh, my, my kids are like, oh, we got pretzels. I would love to have pretzels. I'm hungry for pretzels. And they're like, yeah, they're not salted. And they're like, I'm fine. So what does speech seasoned with salt look like? Shouldn't extend our relationships? Deepen, bring, bring some, some um, wetting of the whistle, so to speak, in, in, in their conversations. Things carry on, they get deeper. So here's what Paul is not saying. Hey, as long as you're kind, it's okay to be irrelevant and bland. He's not saying it's okay to be uninteresting as long as you're polite. Um, I I came across uh, James Dunn, one of the commentators that I read. Um, He's got these great remarks, but it was a little wonky. So with the uh, the help of chat GDP, I kind of reworked it. So here's my paraphrase of James Dunn with AI. Colossians 4 does not portray Christians as uninterested in matters beyond the faith or incapable of engaging in casual conversations or stimulating discussions. Have you ever met that stick in the mud? Anyways. On the contrary, the passage envisions interactions between Christians and non-Christians that are vibrant, considering a wide range of topics. It emphasizes the importance of speaking in a manner that will be well-received by others due to the strong relationships Christians have built within their wider community where healthy conversations occur naturally. 
I think this means that the church is called to be able to hold its own socially, conversationally, out in the marketplace, at the pub, at the dinner table, that we can seize opportunities in our regular everyday exchanges. But how do we do this effectively? I think it requires some stuff that we invest time and energy to actually be with the people get outside of bubbles, become trusted. This means I think Christians should have nothing to do with echo chambers. We don't need that. We need to truly become conversant with what people think and believe. Not have these simple caricatures that reduce something, simplify something, and try to give the right answer to the wrong question or that kind of thing. We need to see what people fear, what they want, what they find interesting. These become necessary data points for us to bring the gospel to bear in their lives. And I think as we do that, we engage deeply and then we discern what people are ultimately searching for underneath. Identity, security, hope, meaning. It's kind of like over time, let's just say you have a friend and your friend doesn't believe, but you've developed this relationship with her and she reveals to you that she has deep shame in her life that's impacted all of her relationships because she was abused when she was young. How do you respond to that? Do you just start, hey, John 3.16 and then 17 and 18, you are a sinner. Is that where you start? It's true, but is that where you start? Do you listen well? Are you the kind of person that will dignify her? Will you be vulnerable as well? Will you talk about your junk And even for me, if I can just break out of my own um, little hypothetical, what I have learned about Jesus and why I love Jesus is because he doesn't just forgive my sin. He takes away my shame. He takes away all the muck that is on me, whether it's my doing or someone else's. He power washes my soul. And if you can be in relationship with someone and say, you're hurting and you know what? I got a guy for that. I'd love to tell you about them. So our relationships are to be marked by grace, seasoned with salt. And you know what they do when we do that? They lead to questions. If you want to know whether or not someone's ready to have a conversation about God or you're in a good place with people or maybe in a good place with God or good place evangelistically, um, people are asking you questions. That's the measure. Now let's do all of verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that, so in order to, there's a point, there's a purpose, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Paul assumes we are being asked questions. When was the last time someone asked you about your faith? See, the vision for the Christian life isn't just interaction with others, but it's intrigue from others. By nature, we are curious Human beings are curious. Even if I don't want to do the thing so often, I'm like, what would it be like if I did? What would it be like when we have questions? Oh, that means something is going right. Healthy relationships naturally include exchanges of thought. Hey, try on these ideas. I'll try on your ideas. They go back and forth. We only avoid this when relationships are either strained or relationships don't exist. So I think what this means, in addition to having gracious and speech that's seasoned with salt, in addition to being in the world, but not of the world, as it's said, 
I believe we should strive to be people who are studious, people who study, that we acquire knowledge, that we are students of scripture and society. If I had more time, and I'm probably going to go too long anyways, because that's what I always do, um, I would riff right now on Acts 17. If you're a Bible nerd, go to Acts 17. Just watch Paul oh, in Athens. It's, it's amazing. He understands society so well. He can speak into it. He can be charitable at points and then also offer some very thoughtful critique, Acts 17. But the question is, are we devoted to acquiring wisdom? While you're thinking about that, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Proverbs 2. He says, tune your ears to the world of wisdom. Set your heart on a life of understanding. That's right. If you make insight your priority and you won't take no for an answer, searching for it like a prospector panning for gold, like an adventurer on a treasure hunt, believe me, before you know it, the fear of God will be yours, which by the way, scripture says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom reverential awe for who he is, the creator, the architect of everything. He gives you a reference point and scaffolding for everything else. The fear of God will be yours. You will have come upon the knowledge of God. There is a beauty in the struggle of trying to grow in wisdom. Sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, I'm just not a reader. And like in my flesh, I want to be like, oh, you're an excuse maker. Oh, I see, I see. But that's not where we want to be. That's not where we want to go. We want to be the kind of people that others can come to. And I will say, it's a highlight of my job when other people hit me up in a lobby or a text or or they have a question and they're like, hey, I'm in dialogue with a friend about such and such topic. What does the Bible say? Hey, do you have a podcast? Is there a book on that? I love nerding out. And if I can just like volunteer all of the leadership at Riverview right now without their permission in public, they would love to hear from you. Reach out. It keeps us on our toes. It's been a while since I've been there. Reach out. God wants us to walk in wisdom. He wants us to have gracious gracious words, seasoned with salt. And he wants us to pray very, very well. So that's my thoughts on Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Those are my thoughts. What are we going to do with it? Well, I thought we would do something a little bit atypical today as we would obey the Bible like right now. That we would pray according to the way Paul prescribes in Colossians 4. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, we are gonna um, we're gonna pray in three movements. We're gonna finish with one song. I'm gonna get us started. And as I get us started, um, we're going to move into the song. Someone else will lead us in another prompt. We'll kind of talk through that, and then we'll give you 30 seconds to pray through that. And then at the end, we will do the same thing with a third person. So if you are a note taker, um, or if you're a person with a notes app, if if you want to get those thumbs going right now, maybe things are going to come to mind right now as we guide you through different prompts. So I would encourage you to do that, and I would encourage you uh, to, to find some solitude this week to pray through the kind of things that Paul prays through. Okay, are you ready? So first, what we want to do is we want to be alert, and we want to be watchful in prayer. So we'll say go in a second, but think, be alert. What's going on in your heart? Where have you been lately? Talk to God about it. 
What's been keeping you up at night? What's been stressing you out? What opportunities are there? Your sovereign, holy God sees all. Talk with him about it. Let's pray alertly, and then we will transition into a time of worship and continue to pray.